Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. I can't stand him. <laughs> that actually ties into our topic today. Well, as it usually does. Yeah, often. Sometimes I don't have time, and I just pick a quote at random. But this time, yes. that actually has to do with what we're going to talk about today. Uh-huh. It's going back to our movie-making series, which we, we've kind of, you know, we slacked off on for a while. But we've got a lot of topics that we cover here at Tech Stuff, not just movie-making. So uh, we decided we'd revisit the whole movie-making series and look at how they put sound on film. Right. Yeah. Before uh, Before any of this happened, if we would introduce that podcast, it would have sounded like so it's a good thing that we are recording a podcast. Yeah, it's, sound. it's it's nice that we have a way of plate of of keeping sound in some sort of fashion where we can replay it at a later date. Yep. Actually, uh, I was I was looking back in preparation for this podcast. I was mm-hmm. looking back at uh, one of my movie books from uh, one of my classes in college. Uh, that would be Understanding Movies by uh, Lewis 
Gianetti, mm-hmm. uh, a very old version. This book has come out in many, many incarnations now. They're in the double digits. Wow. But, um, you know, an interesting point. Movies have always had sound. It's just that they didn't always have sound on film. I mean, the earliest movies were just visuals, and they would hire someone to play along with it in, in the uh, uh, in the theater. Right. In a lot of cases, uh, on an organ. I mean, you see that. Uh, yeah, that's I think the, back to uh, that's the Three typical. Amigos, actually. Right, right. You know, it's either an organ or it's an old clanky honky tonk piano. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's that's sort of the general image we have of those early films. But some of them, like some of the really big movie houses, would have a full orchestra play. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, and and in fact, that actually played a large part in why there's sound on film or why sound on film arrived when it did. Um, in some places, of course, they couldn't have a full orchestra. They just didn't have the space for it, or they didn't mm-hmm. have the people. And you might have just a single musician playing on guitar along with the film in order to provide uh, a soundscape mm-hmm. that goes along with the things that the audience are seeing. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, at the time, of course, uh, dialogue was, you, you'd see them mouthing words, but you wouldn't hear the actors actually speak. Right. Uh, you'd, you know, see the important stuff on uh, cards that they would yeah. put in between. Or occasionally you would have a narrator. Ooh. Yeah. Narrator. Once in a while you would yeah. have someone who would provide narration and provide dialogue, but they'd be doing it live on yeah. stage while you're watching the film. Uh, but yeah, eventually the, the silent films got to a point where the art of the silent film was so well developed that if you were a really good silent filmmaker, you could keep those little cards to a minimum because mm-hmm. you were able to express everything you needed to in the scenes just through the visuals. Mm-hmm. And so you would have them pop up every now and then to provide uh, important information. Like if a character suddenly reveals a, a secret, well, clearly it's hard to reveal a secret without any dialogue. Right. And so that might be important. But for other scenes where you see two people having a loving conversation with one another or a fight, you might not have a card pop up at all because really they just want to get across that emotion, that moment. There wasn't an, the, the words were not important. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, even apparently some of the early, uh, filmmakers who were uh, around at the time of the transition uh, to sound on film uh, actually didn't want to do it. They said that uh, the idea of synchronous sound with the film would actually hamper their ability to edit the film the way they wanted it to. That it wouldn't. Uh, that it might actually slow them down, or, or or they would be anchored to the soundtrack of the film, and they didn't want to be constrained. One one notable was the uh, uh, Russian filmmaker uh, Eisenstein. Sergei Eisenstein. Who, a, you know, I I remember watching Battleship Potemkin in my in in the aforementioned movie class, and uh, yeah, I can't imagine actually having sound in some pieces of that because of the the montages he put together. But right. uh, other movie makers realized that they could use the actual actors' voices, and you could hear uh, dialogue without having to you know do stage whispers as you might see on you know in a play. Right. Uh, and you could you could add the subtleties of the actual verbal language and there are things that you those things you couldn't do uh with a narrator or with the cue cards that's true and uh the idea of actually putting sound to film goes all the way back to the earliest days of film itself because uh, edison struggled with ways of creating uh, a sound and film device that would let you to watch moving pictures and hear 
pre-recorded sound at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked on that starting in the mid-1880s. Yeah, so this is 19th century technology. Yeah, yeah. And so by 1895, he came up with a kinetophone. Mm-hmm. Now, the kinetophone combined two earlier uh, inventions. Yes. The kinetoscope, which if you've ever seen one of those, it's it's the circular device that has slits cut in it and it has a series of images on the inside. And when you mm-hmm. spin the device and you look through the slits, you see those different images uh, appearing before your eyes in a very in, in a quick succession. And it provides right. the, the illusion of animation. Illusion. Illusion. And a kinetophone or the uh, the kinet- the phone part was from the phonograph. Mm-hmm. Is, of course, we all probably know what a phonograph is. You know, yes. it records sound on a cylinder or a disc, and then it uses a stylus to create uh, vibrations, which are then uh, turned into sound waves through some sort of amplifier. Yes. Often just a horn. Well, he created the kinetophone, which combined these two things. You had to use rubber ear tubes to listen to the sound. Lovely. Yeah. You don't want to hit the kinetophone at the end of a hard day's work because who knows who's been there before you. You? Yeah. Just saying. And uh, they were... The the picture and the uh, the sound were somewhat synchronized. Mm-hmm. They used a, a belt system to link the two so that as the... the kinetoscope turned the phonograph as turned as well it wasn't perfect obviously uh it was one of those early kind of prototype sort of uh, uh almost a curiosity really yeah uh that presaged the whole sound on film movement uh what's interesting is that we have one of these films we do one of them exists that we can actually people can go and look at if they want to um, it's called the Dixon Experimental Sound Film, and it was filmed sometime around 1895. Really, what's it about? It's about, <laughs> it's about 17 seconds long. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's uh, the fellow uh, Dixon actually. Mm-hmm. Um, he was uh, uh playing a, a a violin, a fiddle, mm-hmm. in front of a um recording phonograph. Right. Yeah. And there's two men, um, two of Edison's lab. Uh, assistants who are dancing to the music that Dixon's playing on the fiddle. And um, what's interesting is that the film and the phonograph were uh, separated, the the cylinder. So you had the film and the cylinder existing in two different places. Yes. The film uh, was with the Library of Congress. The cylinder was with the uh, National Park Service because it was part of the, the Ed- Edison, Edison yeah. right, Museum. So you've got... you've. And and for a long time, no one knew that these two things were actually connected, that they were a part of the same event. Mm-hmm. And then it was discovered that that was indeed the case. And uh, and so a, uh, a a fellow by Walter Murch was given the task to resynchronize these two different medium, mm-hmm. right? And so he took the uh, the film, which was 17 seconds long. He took the cylinder, which had a recording that was about two minutes long, and he had to find out where they right, synced up. Right, okay. And so you can actually see that on YouTube now. If you go to YouTube and you search for Dixon Experimental Sound Film, it's on there. Excellent. I mean, it's a guy playing a fiddle and two other guys dancing with each other. It's, it's, but it's interesting. It's the very first uh, surviving sound on film experiment that we can see. And granted, now technically, the sound is not on the film itself. Right. right. They're two different devices that coexist. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. that was kind of the case for the earliest 
sound on film uh, or, the, or the earliest uh, films that incorporate sound right, in them, right. pre-recorded sound. Uh, the first, the first one really was uh, Don Juan, mm-hmm. um, uh, or Don Juan for our friends over in the UK. Yes, but uh, that one is a Warner Brothers film, and it was uh, using something called the Vitaphone. Yes, which uh, remarkably enough is not a phone packed with all the nutrients that you need for the day. I was yes. very disappointed to learn that. You can have a Vitaphone and still get scurvy. <laughs> yes, you can. I like that. That was good. So at any rate, uh, yes, that's a vitamin C joke. Yay. Uh, the the Vitaphone was, a, 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 again, it was a phonograph system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was hooked up to a projector with a with a pulley system, a pulley and belt system. And it would synchronize the music with uh, with whatever was being projected on screen. Now, Don Juan, this was just music. It was not dialogue. Yep. And it was a wax record, too, was it not? I believe so, yes. It wasn't I believe vinyl. It, was, it was a wax record for the, the earliest ones. So they really did put it down on wax. Yes, they did. Yes. It's, it was, that's not just a saying. Um, and so, uh, so that's sound on disc, yeah. not sound on film. And the, the disc was a 33 and a third RPM mm-hmm. disc. Uh, it was uh, developed by Bell Telephone Laboratories and Western Electric, mm-hmm. and it actually used several discs. Clearly, because you can't, you know, the the disc does not have enough space on it to record an entire film's worth of soundtrack. Yes, uh, and I understand typically too the sound for sound on disc films was recorded after the fact. Yeah, more than anything else, it wasn't. It was synced up, I guess, to the to the movie as it was, so it wasn't done simultaneously. Right. Well, in in this case, again, it was it was a soundtrack. It was the music. It wasn't dialogue, so you could record it anytime you wanted. Well, right, right. But know? as as the uh, as they continued to make sound on disc, uh, because the jazz singer, uh, yeah. you know, the year after uh, Don Juan slash Juan came out. Um, <laughs> yes, I remember that from my college English classes as well. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that it was it was out and it had um, it had additional uh, material, including uh, sound effects and dialogue, if I'm not mistaken. There was some resistance to putting sound on film early. Part of it was that the silent film art had really progressed to a point sure. where people felt comfortable with it. As you pointed out, the editing issue was there. Um, some people just thought that audiences wouldn't really care for sound on film. There yeah. was also a real problem of how how do you create the right volume so that everyone in the theater can hear the sound because the speakers weren't great this early on. It's my opinion that they are still wrestling with how much volume is enough volume. Well, now it's the other way around, right? <laughs> it's it's At what point do we start dialing it back when audiences complain that they can no longer hear anything else once the movie's over? Yeah. I'm looking yeah. at you, Michael Bay. And uh, <laughs> uh, the... But yeah, the, the, the earliest... The reason why Don Juan was even attempted was that in, in 1925, you had the Warner Brothers uh, see a, a demonstration of uh, this system and... Um, Sam Warner was totally buying into it, right? Mm-hmm. Jack Warner was not as impressed until Jack Warner saw one film that included an orchestra playing and mm-hmm. it played the music as well. And then he thought, this is what we should use this for, not for dialogue, but just for the music, because there are so many movie theaters out there that don't have a full orchestra. Right. And now they can benefit from that. This is brilliant. Well, then you had the jazz singer come out, which was just going to be singing, right? There was not right. going to be any dialogue in that. Right, right. Except Al Jolson decided to ad-lib a little. Mm-hmm. And they kept it in the film, and it ended up 
being a big commercial success. So uh, then a, a little bit later in 1928, you had another sound film come out, short film, very short film, famous one, cartoon. It was a hmm. certain a certain mouse made an appearance in it. You know yes. what I'm getting at, right? Yes, I do. Steamboat Willie. Steamboat Willie. Yep, Mickey Mouse in Steamboat Willie, and uh, that mouse sure can drive a riverboat. Right. Pi- pilot a riverboat, I should say. It was the first film that really, truly synchronized uh, sound to images and made it part of a story. Yeah. So from there, there was no turning back. Uh, but the Vitaphone system really limited you quite a bit. For one thing, it, it had two points of failure, right? Yeah, yeah. because, I mean, it, if the Vitaphone breaks, then suddenly you've got no sound whatsoever. Right. So... How do you simplify the system so you no longer have two devices to depend upon? Hmm. Let's see. You could put the sound on the film. Brilliant. But how do you do that? I mean, because... Super glue. Yeah. (laughs) Nail that note to the film, (laughs) Buster. Um, No, actually, it it was really an ingenious design. Yes. Uh, It's creating an optical... uh, a track mm-hmm. on the film that doesn't show up on the screen, mm-hmm. but it allows light to pass through it. And depending on how much light passes through, that's what generates the sound you hear. There are actually photocells that receive light. Mm-hmm. And then depending upon how much light they do or do not receive, they send electric current to uh, another device, which will create the actual sound. So in a way, you're looking at the physical... You're looking, you're looking at an optical representation of what sound is, right? You've yes. pre-recorded the sound. You print it on the film so that uh, it only allows specific amounts of light through. It gets matched up to the uh, to frames of the film so that everything is synchronized because it's all in one place. You've got the images on the film and you've got the sound on the film, usually to the right mm-hmm. of the, the images. So if you were looking at a strip of film, you would see the images in, in the middle of it and just on the very far right edge of the image, you would see this weird line, or, yeah. or sometimes two lines. Mm-hmm. And that was the optical track for the soundtrack. Yes. And you use a uh, an audio pickup yeah. or an audio reader to uh, to see that. And uh, from from our article on uh, on Movie Sound, mm-hmm. uh, I, I did read that uh, uh, you the analog pickups are often below the lens, mm-hmm. while the uh, digital pickups are above it. Right, yeah, because, of course, now we do have digital sound. Now, in the right. earliest days, it was all No, no, analog. no, yes, absolutely. And, in fact, most, uh, we'll, we'll get into this, but most most films, even the ones that have digital sound, still have the analog track on it, and we'll explain yeah. why when mm-hmm. we get to that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's usually an exciter lamp inside the uh, the actual, yes. <laughs> not that kind. Oh. But uh, it, it's a lamp that provides a particularly bright and pinpointed light through the, the optical tracks. So it's specific for that uh, within a projector. And, um, yeah, it goes all the way through the preamplifier. The preamplifier sends it to the amplifier, which, cre- you know, increases the, the uh, what? Chris is looking at me and laughing. No, no, no. I'm just wishing I hadn't done that. Oh, the, yes. the, the excited part? Yes. That's okay. I'm sure that I'll get plenty of mail about it. Don't you worry. <laughs> all right. Anyway, so yeah, the preamp sends sends the signal to the amplifier, which then sends the signal to the speakers, and then you get sound. And uh, 
there there were some a lot of movies early on in the in the 40s started using this system uh, not the digital as i said before just the analog right 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 um and one in particular really went overboard yes fantasia ah yes once again we go back to disney Fantasia, uh, if you're not familiar with Fantasia, it's a film that presents several different uh, classical music pieces set to animation done by Disney. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the animation, actually much of the animation, uh, is completely uh, original. It doesn't have any, or it doesn't rely upon their, their stock characters. Right. There's a couple pieces that do, depending on which version of Fantasia you see. And... Um, yeah, I'm, Disney liked to experiment with new technologies. Yes, he was he was very into pushing the envelope, and uh, I mean, even when they the studio released Snow White, a lot of people told him it couldn't be done. That creating a uh, uh, creating an animated feature that long would be very difficult. Uh, it wouldn't go over well with the audience. So right. I think every time people told him, you know, it couldn't be done, or he was crazy to try it, he it, I think it just pushed him more to try to, to develop new technologies. So Fantasia was certainly uh, an ambitious, proje- ambitious project. I'm sure it was. Yes. Um, the, uh, it, it, it had multiple tracks of sound. So it wasn't yes. just mono sound coming from behind the screen. That was the other thing is that early early uh, uh, movies with sound, they had the speakers were actually mounted just behind the screen, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And they were just blasting the sound through the screen at the audience. Uh, Fantasia was more sophisticated. It was using a, a Fanta sound, yeah. is what they called it. Um, not, there's no big surprise there. We mentioned that on our surround sound podcast yes. a little bit. And they used actually used four mono optical soundtracks. Mm-hmm. And the problem here with four mono optical soundtracks is that's too many to fit on the actual film of the the, the images that you're watching on the screen. That's right. If you were to fit four optical tracks side by side, it would creep into the frame of the movie, and you would see that on the right side. It would be really weird, right? Yeah, there, there's a physical limitation to the amount of space available on the celluloid in this case. Yeah, you would have to otherwise create new projectors that could handle much wider film. And that's a little expensive. Yeah. It, well, when I this say was, a little. This was already a little expensive. But what they ended up doing was instead of having the optical tracks appear on the same film as the, the actual movie, uh-huh. they had two separate reels of film. Really? Yes. One reel of film had the images and the other reel of film had the optical tracks on it. So you had to have mm-hmm. two projectors to show this movie the way that Disney intended it to be screened. Right. The second projector would just be handling the soundtrack, which mm-hmm. is crazy to me. But each of those tracks would be sent to specific groups of speakers. Mm-hmm. And that way you could get the the sensation that you're sitting in the middle of an orchestra. Right. Which is really what they were going for there. They wanted to they wanted to sort of transport you as if you were actually sitting in a symphony hall, not watching a movie screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was a, a very manual way of doing it because they would fade the sound in one speaker and turn it up in the other to produce that uh, audio illusion right. of, of depth. So, uh, yeah, I mean, people who uh, are using the more modern tools where you can play with different tracks and add all kinds of different uh, tracks in their computers, you know, this was a, this is a more hands-on approach, if you will. So do you know how many of these Fantasound systems actually got sold? No, but I'd li- I'll take a guess. I want to say four. You are... T- twice as optimistic. Oh, I was either two or four. It was two. Uh, ah. Yeah, one was sold to New York's Broadway Theater, and the uh-huh. other one to Carthay Circle Theater in Los Angeles. Yeah, I knew about the one in, in L.A., but I thought there were 
I thought there was four. $85,000 to install this thing. That's only slightly expensive. Keeping in mind, this is 1940. (laughs) That's incredibly expensive. And it it needed 54 speakers in the the audience in order to do this properly. So, yeah, obviously this is not the kind of sound system that's going to work for every theater, Mm -hmm. clearly. And and it's not necessary for most um, movies. So really the, the Fantasound was one of those things where it, it really kind of showed you where movie sound could, could go to, but it wasn't practical for moving forward. So mm-hmm. uh, most most of the uh, the film studios stuck with the optical tracks. Um, and that was pretty much the case until sometime in the 50s when they started to experiment with a new kind of soundtrack on film. Yes. Which was magnetic. Yes. Now that magnetic, uh, you know, I would assume, based on on what I know of these things, that uh, we're talking the same type of technology that you would see in, say, a floppy disk or, or a, cassette a cassette tape. tape. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, that that uh, was certainly an innovation, but you know, they and it uh, it did have better sound quality. Yeah. Supposedly, the the magnetic. Uh, approach was superior to the optical tracks at the time uh, in sound quality if you managed to see the movie early. Yes. Because unfortunately, one of the byproducts was that the magnetic tape, or the magnetic uh, coating rather, would wear down over time. And of course, as you showed the film, it would wear down faster. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to catch a movie three or four days after it had started playing in a movie house, especially if it had a lot of shows during the day... Uh, the sound quality would be uh, would be noticeably less uh, pristine. Yes, right. It would not be pristine uh, compared to if you had seen it the first time they they screened the film. Right. So that's not the case with the optical tracks. I mean, as long as the film's in good shape, the optical tracks are just fine. And uh, there, most of the movies that were made with this magnetic, or some of them anyway, were, that were made with this magnetic approach, did not have the optical tracks as a failsafe. Right. Some did, because people were saying, hey, you know, what if the system fails for this? Do we have a backup plan? And the idea is, well, we already know how to do the optical track. Let's do that, too. And that ended up being the rule of thumb for most audio systems moving forward. And even when we get into digital and all the, all the different ways of doing digital sound, most films still keep that optical track, because mm-hmm. if something fails... You can always go back to the analog soundtrack. It's not going to be as good an experience necessarily, but you'll at least have sound with your movie. Right. And, of course, with the the, uh, financial outlay of movie theaters, they don't want to turn people away because they can't show the film. They, They pay a lot of money. To be able to show these films, so they uh, they want something that they can they can continue to make money off of and try to recoup their investment. Um, so they definitely want some kind of plan as a backup, right? Um, yeah, and, the, and that's the thing too. Ma- the magnetic uh, the magnetic readers that that technology was more expensive as well. Um, so that that makes it even that much more important. Or at least I would imagine it would. Yeah, that would. I'm sure that factored into decisions as they went further down the road. So when we get to the 60s, that's when we finally get into... Oh, did you have something to add before that? Oh, I just noticed in my notes that uh, Magnetic also... Did, did you point out that you could have up to six tracks? No, I did not. Um, 
So that's something else, another advantage that Magnetic had. So we're we're sort of in the more modern era of sound. Yeah, we all started getting to the point where they were starting to figure out how to matrix sound, which is pretty complicated. I don't know that we can really get into it, but it's essentially it's it's taking multiple tracks mm-hmm. and combining them in such a way so that you can represent them as one one strip of optical track. So it's the one. Yes, and you you really have a left you have a left side a right side and then you have the center mm-hmm. and the way it works is everything that's coded for the left side just plays for the left side everything that's coded just for the right side plays just for the right side everything that's coded for both plays also in the center but at a few decibels lower than on the left and right right that's that's the easy way of explaining it but it gets way more complex than that so uh, but in the 60s that's when we uh, see dolby mhm start to enter into the the movie sound uh, market and and they had the the Dolby A type noise reduction introduced in uh, 1965. Yes. And uh and this was um this was a a pretty big development as well. It's another interesting approach. Um Dolby of course played uh, or continues to play a really important part in in movie sound today. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that was that was when they were hitting the scene. Um, and we start getting to the point where we're approaching when we're getting to digital sound. That that really starts up in the seventies, mm-hmm. um, uh, or at least the the first attempts at it. Uh, and then in the eighties, we actually see even more of that. Now with digital, you start using pixels instead of an optical track mm. to uh, to give the signal to the photocells in order to play back. At least that's one way of doing it. Yeah. Um, and uh, a couple of systems didn't use the optical track as a back uh, backup, um, which became a problem. The uh, the one I'm thinking of specifically was um, the Cinema Digital Sound System CDS, which this mm-hmm. this is all the way up into 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was used with the film Dick Tracy. And uh, um, I remember that. Yeah, one of the problems with this was that they did not use the optical uh, track as a backup, the analog track as a backup, mm-hmm. and so if your digital system failed, there was no backup to go with. And actually, that did happen at a couple of theaters, and it, it hurt the film, Dick Tracy, a little bit uh, more so than the actual content of that terrible movie. Um, <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to take a shot at that. Yeah, now, what's interesting, also interesting about the, the digital pixels, the little pixels that provide the uh, the information needed to transmit sound through film. Mm-hmm. All right, these little pixels they have to be somewhere, right? Right. Where do you store them if you've already taken up space on one side with the optical tracks? Mm, I don't know. In a box under the bed? No, that's where the ambiguity is. Oh. It's over there in a box. Uh no, the <laughs> It depends on the system, but one of them uh they they would put the uh, the dots in between the holes in the film. All right, you know where the holes are where it would fit on the sprockets. Right. Right? Okay, so you got those little strips of film between the holes. That's where the dots would be stored for digital sound. Wow. Yeah. So and it's then, not a, so it's not continuous. No, as because, it would be with the traditional right, format. Right, but but with the with it being digital, you didn't have it have to have it be continuous as with the uh the optical strip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of neat. It was um the, the the Dolby Digital Track, that's that's for the Dolby Digital Track. That's the one that will be between the little holes in the 
the the film. So yes. where the sprockets would go. And you can actually see a, a picture of that in the movie sound article. Yeah. On the Dolby Digital page, you can actually see what uh, Jonathan's talking about there. Right. It's a little odd to think about though how they could do that and have it not be continuous. Yeah, I I assume that it's because of the digital nature of it. We're talking, you know, a little it's different than analog where you have to follow along in real time mm-hmm. with the picture. Uh but the there's also the Sony Dynamic Digital Sound System. SDDS? Yes, SDDS. Now, if you were looking at a piece of film, uh, the SDDS would be on the outer, outer edge of that film. Yeah, so and, on the outside of the sprockets. Right. On the outside of the sprockets, you would find the um, the 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 little digital dots for the SDDS system. Yes. And then in between the sprockets, you find the Dolby Digital, and then you find the optical tracks. And, uh, of course, with the uh, Dolby system, uh, which I believe uses an LED, the Sony system uses something else to read the sound. Are you talking about a laser? I was trying to give you the opportunity it's to do that. It's a laser. I was hoping that was the one. I was like, you know what? Yes. I've gotten to the point. The reason why I'm, I'm, I'm hemming and hawing a little bit is because my notes crashed. So uh, I'm, I'm going a lot from memory. But, yeah, I was like, yeah, I think that is the laser yes. system. The, yes, the light apparently goes through, uh, is magnified mm-hmm. um, and passes and, uh, you know, goes through the film and is magnified and a, an array of photo cells picks it up and is able to read it that way. So, yes, it is running with a laser, which yeah. I won't try to say like you said. The, the cool thing about this is going back to, you know, the the whole idea of combining the sound and the images into one uh, format so that you you don't have to depend on multiple devices and you don't have to synchronize them. Like, if you do have two different devices, you have to worry that they both are working properly and in perfect sync with one another or else, you know, your sound is not going to match up with the, the what you're seeing. Right. Uh, video, of course, has a totally different setup. Video is not the same as film. Uh, and so you can find, like, especially if you watch streaming video online, you will occasionally see streaming video where the the sound and the video are not synchronized properly. Yes. And it, it gets looks like it's a really poorly dubbed foreign film. Mm. Uh, but film does not have that issue because, of course, it's all there. I mean, assuming your your projector's working properly. Right, right. It's all right there together. So it's really an ingenious approach to matching that sound up with the movies. I mean, if we had not come up with that optical approach, analog and digital both, uh, we would probably not have as many talkies out there. I mean, just because it'd be such a pain in the butt to have to match the sound up to the the picture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it is fascinating to think about how these things go. And I think uh, back, uh, I think we actually are seeing uh, uh, sort of an analog, pardon the term, an analog today in the 3D boom. Yeah. Because I, I have the feeling based on what I've read about the jazz singer and how it, it really, you know, took the audiences by storm. And I, I think it caught the movie industry off guard a little bit by how popular it really was. And I think 3D movies are another situation like that where they're going, wow, people really want to do this. Let's go. And so they're, you know, in some cases rushing them out the door, as we mentioned on our 3D movies podcast. Right. Uh, uh, when know, they're, they're con- trying to capitalize yeah, on the trying interest to convert, in it. convert films that were not shot in 3D to become 3D. Right, right. Please so it's stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think it's sort of a, a similar situation. Um, to that, but it's it's amazing how uh, simple 
the solution was to to add that to the film. Yeah, and how it, advanced it has become in their variations on the. It's pretty remarkable. Technology. I agree. I agree. Agree entirely. Excellent. So let's wrap this up. Uh, one little aside. I'm going to br- point out one other thing that really made movies sound possible. Okay. The boom mic. Yes, that's true. We didn't talk about that. Yeah, because... Because they used a blimp for a while. Right. Yeah, the earliest... Yeah, the blimp was essentially a soundproofed chamber that you had to put your your camera and sound equipment in when you were filming these early, early uh, uh, sound yes. films because the, the equipment made so much noise that it would drown out the sounds you were trying to capture. Yeah, initially, in the very, very early movies where they tried to do this, they... you. The cameras were stationary anyway, right? So that, and so were the mics. Yeah. So, so it, was in order like, to, it was almost like sitting in front of a stage. Yes, exactly. You weren't gonna have a lot of. You weren't gonna have any panning or or anything like that. You might have a little bit of a zoom, but Aaron I mean, Sorkin would have been so out of his element. He had no walk and talk. Let yep. me tell you that. Uh, so so the. The the microphones often were stationary for the early films as well, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. meant that you had that even further limited the movement the actors could make, because if they moved too far away from the microphone, you couldn't hear them anymore. Yeah, I'm totally reliving "Singing in the Rain" in my head is, as we're yeah, having exactly, this whole conversation. Exactly, because there's there it was satirized in "Singing in the Rain." If you watch that film, uh, they have entire scenes where they're showing the problems that they have as they try to find places to put microphones. And pick up the sound without picking up unwanted sound. And it was yes. a problem. The boom mic was a brilliant... Uh, thank you for illustrating. That's not that's not unprofessional at all, Valette. You're fired. Um, the, the, uh, <laughs> you can't fire me. That's true. The I don't have that authority. The um, No, but the boom mic really allowed actors to move around within a scene. And uh, you just kept the microphone out of frame. And it solved a lot of problems. But... It took a while to come up with that solution. Yes. And really, we don't truly know who invented it. There's some kind of uh, guesswork about it uh, being um, uh, there was a, a female director who was given that that kind of um, uh, she's a, she's credited with creating it, but we don't truly know. So I can't really say who it was that came up with that idea, but it was a brilliant one. Good job, whoever you are. <sighs> Anyway, that wraps up this discussion about sound on film. And uh, we'll probably do more movie-making technology podcasts in the future. We still have to talk about special effects and Mm. digital effects and the difference between the two. Wow. Maybe we'll do an entire show about Foley, because we didn't get into that either. That's true. Which is another element of sound. It's creating the proper sound effects for a film. when, uh, And sometimes you have to use stuff that you wouldn't you wouldn't imagine would sound like what you're actually trying to make it sound like. Again, my mind is drawn to Ben Burt. Ah, there you go. Yes. A master sound effect technician. Yep. We are going to wrap this one up. If you guys would like to know specific information about specific topics in movie making, you can let us know on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle there is techstuffhsw. You can email us. That address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Jonathan, um, mm-hmm. actually, this was just handed to me. Uh, uh, okay. It looks like HowStuffWorks.com now has an iPhone app. Sweet! Isn't that yeah. awesome? Yeah, actually, um, I got to, to take a look at this earlier. And, guys, this is pretty cool. 
The iPhone app is uh, sort of a way to integrate all the cool stuff we do at HowStuffWorks.com. So you guys may have listened to one of our podcasts and we talked about there's this great article on the site, but you're not at your computer, so you can't really check it. Well, the iPhone app actually lets you browse articles and blog posts. It even lets you interact on Facebook and Twitter, and you can listen to podcasts at the same time. And it has all the HowStuffWorks.com podcasts on it, not just ours, but, you know, good ones, too. So you can listen to those and look at the articles and, and go on Facebook and Twitter, and uh, it should work perfectly with your iPhones and iPod Touches. Awesome. Well, that's, uh, it looks like that's now available on the iTunes store, so that's good to know. How much does it cost? It's free. Sweet! Ha <laughs> ha. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 